Well, it is um, one of those times of the year where the content for the preacher is pretty much already set, right? Like nobody's coming in today wondering what I'm going to talk about it, but it always amazes me. Every single year, um, when I come to the gospel text and, and the story of Easter, the story of that first resurrection, it, it just, it boggles my mind that none of the original followers of Jesus are outside of the tomb on Sunday morning, counting down from 10. 10, 9, 8, cue the sun, 7, 6. Nobody was there. There was nobody, there was no vendor selling t-shirts. He is risen on the back. He is risen indeed, right? There's, there's nobody outside the tomb because nobody expected a resurrection. It just boggles my mind. And I know we're on the other side of it, so it's a little unfair to criticize them. I get that, okay? But I'm setting up where we're going to go. Look at this. Mark tells us, when the Sabbath was over, so they're free to go back to work as Jews, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, this group of women, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Why did they go to do that? Because they thought what we think, dead bodies, tend to stay dead. These same women watched him die Friday night. They watched um, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea just kind of really quickly get Jesus' body ready for burial before sundown on Friday night. And they're standing there watching them do it the whole time. I know they were standing there thinking, they're not doing it right. They're not doing it right. They're not doing it right. All right? Like they had to do it so, so quickly. There's no way they could have done it right. And they, these women, they believed like all the rest of the disciples that Jesus was a great teacher. He was a miracle worker and they hoped he was the Messiah. But there's no way that God would allow the Messiah to be killed. And so they show back up Sunday morning to finish the job. And on the way, they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? The stone they saw there placed there Friday night. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And then Luke, a doctor who thoroughly investigated these events, who thoroughly talked to multiple eyewitnesses to this story, says that they went inside the tomb and they found that it was empty. And here's, here's, like, here's the thing you need to know, especially if like, you used to be a church person, you used to believe this stuff, and maybe this is the time of year that you just go to church because that's what, that's what you do. But perhaps part of the story that you've never heard is that when Jesus' closest followers looked into the empty tomb, not a single one of them assumed resurrection. Not a single one. Here's another way to say it. Nobody expected. Nobody Nobody expected nobody. When Mary and that group of women looked inside the empty tomb, they assumed what you would have assumed that morning. They assumed somebody stole the body. You would have assumed the same thing. We're told that they ran back to the city to find the disciples who were hiding. And here's what they said. They, whoever they are, because they didn't know who they were, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Somebody moved that gigantic stone. Somebody went inside the tomb. Somebody took his body. We have no idea where. And the worst part is we don't even know who did it. We don't know their motive for doing this. 
And there's multiple parts of this story that I just look at and I go, this has to be true. There's no way they put that in there if this isn't true. Here's one of those things that just proves to me that this really happened. Luke tells us, but they, the disciples, did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. So think about this. Frantic ladies that were so emotional that the men thought they were skeptical. Have you ever seen anything like that happen? And all the husbands are like, nope, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. Right? If you would characterize yourself as someone that acknowledges Jesus as a historical figure, and pretty much everybody does now, there was a period in history where people really pushed back on that, but there's so much evidence now that pretty much everybody believes he was a historical figure. If you're someone that agrees that he said some good things, that his lifestyle is something that we should emulate, but you just can't get there at the resurrection, it just seems like nonsense, can I tell you today, you're in good company. Because Jesus' original followers felt the same way the morning they found his body was missing. Nobody assumed a resurrection. But Peter and another one of the disciples couldn't just sit there because these women were absolutely frantic. Guys, the body's not there. The text says, Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and he went away shouting, he is risen. And John replying, he's risen indeed, Peter. It's not what it says, does it? <laughs> went away wondering to himself what had happened. No great figures of faith in this story. Nobody saying, oh yeah, he did tell us this was going to happen. They just assumed the body was misstolen. The writers of the New Testament document their skepticism. They document the unbelief of the very people who would eventually become the spokesmen and the spokeswomen of these events. They documented their own disbelief. They were not superstitious people. These were men and women who from Thursday night to Friday night had given up all hope. From th in the span of 24 hours, the guy who raised people from the dead was dead. In the span of 24 hours, all of this momentum, all of this stuff that had happened in Jerusalem over the last couple of days, done. They thought it was over. There was no dream to keep alive, no movement to keep moving. But John tells us later that night, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, they don't hide these details, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, because they killed Jesus, surely we're next. Pilate gave them permission to kill our leader, so surely they're going to come after his followers. The day Jesus' body was discovered is missing. They're not running through the streets proclaiming a miracle that happened. They're hiding because they're afraid. And we're told that Jesus pays them a visit, and they, they respond again the same way that you and I would respond. They were startled and frightened. Understatement of the history of humankind, right? Of course they're startled and frightened because they thought they saw a ghost. 
Jesus said to them, and I think he had a big old grin on his face when he said this, why are you troubled? Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Jesus had done this multiple times throughout his time with the disciples. One day, one night they're in a boat. Winds and waves are going crazy. Jesus shows up just chilling, walking on the water, comes up to the boat, speaks. I know. But why are you so afraid about that? I'm here. If I can speak to the winds and the waves, don't you think I got you? Why are you so troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? I think Jesus is still asking that question today. These were men and women who saw him arrested, knew he'd been crucified. They knew he was dead, and they thought they were next. And Jesus says, yeah, I know all that stuff, but he goes on. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Were you guys not listening when I told you this over and over and over and over again? And the answer is like, no, not really. They weren't. They weren't listening. It didn't sink in. They didn't think anything bad could happen to Jesus. He's the guy who could raise people from the dead who's going to kill you if you can do that. Everything, he says, must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So Jesus says, I told you. Our sacred scripture told you. I tried to make the connection. I tried to connect the dots there. Do you guys ever listen to me? You just kind of feel this frustration, right? The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, which is right where they were sitting that night when Jesus said this. And then he looks him in the eye. And I think he says something It's just extraordinarily important, something that would ultimately change them, something that would ultimately change the world, and something that would ultimately be the reason why we're gathering here today. It's the reason why people all over this globe are gathering here today. He looked at them and he said, guys, you, you are witnesses of these things. Yeah, you weren't outside the tomb Sunday morning. I get that. You did right over your head. You didn't get it. But you guys, you're going to be the witnesses of these things. They were the witnesses of the event that changed the world. They were witnesses of the event. The resurrection of Jesus created Christianity and launched the church. Before the resurrection, there were no Christians after the crucifixion, there were no Christians. Everybody gave up hope. Nobody was going to launch a movement in Jesus' name. Nobody was going to keep the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the good Samaritan in circulation for people to continue reading. Nobody was going to repeat his teaching to anyone. He claimed way too much about himself for them to repeat it. If he'd been killed, Jesus was not who he claimed to be if he was dead, but the resurrection changed all of that. It changed all of that. And if you're new to Christianity, or maybe nobody's ever told you this before, or maybe you've never thought about it like this before, um, you need to hear this. There's something very, very important to this. The reason 
that we believe Jesus rose from the dead is because of what Jesus told them that night, that they would be the witnesses. It's because of their testimony that we believe those things. We don't believe Jesus rose from the dead because the Bible tells us. We believe Jesus rose from the dead because the eyewitnesses told us it was eventually written down and it eventually became a part of the Bible as we know it. We believe because Matthew, who was an eyewitness, documented these things and told us so. We believe because Mark, who we believe got most of his information from Peter, documented these events and told us so. We believe because Luke, who thoroughly investigated all of these events, wrote out an account and told us so. We believe because John, who was an eyewitness to these things, wrote an account of Jesus' life and told us so. We believe because Peter believed Jesus rose from the dead and later on wrote letters to churches that says as much. We believe because James, the brother of Jesus who comes along later on in the story, eventually declared that his brother was his Lord. What would it take for your brother to prove that he was your Lord? And then last, but, and he says he's the least. The apostle Paul believed Jesus rose from the dead and told us so. It is not intellectually viable to say, I don't believe the Bible when it says Jesus rose from the dead. Which part do you not believe? Which eyewitness? Which gospel do you not believe? Because you have to discredit all of them. We believe Jesus rose from the dead because they did exactly what Jesus said they were going to do that night. You will be my witnesses to all the nations. And you know what all the nations were when Jesus said that? The United States of America. Topeka, Kansas. 2,000 years later, halfway around the world, were gathered to talk about a Jewish rabbi that came back from the dead. Put that in your smoker and cook it right? How does that happen if they are not the witnesses? They documented what they saw. Those documents were copied and distributed. It's one of the reasons we're here today. It's why we say the foundation of the Christian faith is an event. The foundation of faith is not faith. The foundation of faith is not the Bible. The foundation of the Christian faith is an event, an extraordinary event with profound implications, profound implications for your life, for your death, for your fears, for your hopes, and for your dreams. Profound implications. And Peter, Peter, who looked into that empty tomb and walked away wondering what had happened. Peter, who was sold hook, line, and sinker the first day that Jesus asked him to go fishing. Peter, who believed, then unbelieved, then denied he had ever believed, and then re-believed. Did you catch that? Let me go through it again. Peter, who believed, and then when Jesus was arrested, he unbelieved. Then when he was confronted by a middle school girl, said, I've never believed. And then after the resurrection, he re-believed. Does that describe anybody's religious pattern in here? Tradition tells us that Peter was beheaded in Nero's Rome because of what he believed, because of his faith in Jesus. And at some point, Peter sat down with a scribe and dictated two letters that have survived antiquity and have become a part of what we know of 
as the New Testament. In one of those letters, as an old man looking back on his life, looking back on all he'd experienced with Jesus, looking at all he'd experienced with, with the other disciples, he, he, he writes down what he believes. He says this to first century Christians, and I think he says it to you and I as well. Here's what Peter, who saw it all, told his scribe to write down. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter believed that God was Jesus' Father. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth or new life into a living hope. Now, that word hope there is not a verb. He's not saying, I hope this is all true. It's actually a noun. He's, he's saying, because of what happened, we have, I have, you can have this kind of hope. But, but, but based on what, Peter, the next word tells us, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through, if you take notes in your Bible, you should put because of above that word. In other words, Peter, what gives you so much confidence in this? Like, where's the evidence? What, what makes you think that this can give you so much assurance? Like, as an old man, you should just kick back and relax. Like, why do you keep risking your life every day for this? Peter tells us, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you were to ask Peter, Peter, what's the foundation of your faith? He would not say the story of the prodigal son. He wouldn't talk about any of Jesus' teaching. He wouldn't talk about the incarnation. It wasn't Christmas. Those things are all important. But Peter, Peter would say the, the foundation of my faith, my faith in Jesus was resurrected when I saw my resurrected Jesus. He goes on. He used an interesting word, and this is where it applies to you and I into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Who gets an inheritance? I hope I do, but who gets an inheritance, like normally? Children, right? Children get an inheritance. So Peter is pointing to this relational factor. Like this, is, this isn't just history. This isn't just events that have happened that he, that he saw. But he says, by the cross and the resurrection paved the way for us to have a relationship with God that can be described as father and son or father and daughter. It's relational. There's an inheritance. And the only people who get an inheritance are children. And what comes next? It might be the most extraordinary part. Where is this inheritance? This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. If you haven't been paying attention, I need you to come back to me, okay? Wake up the guy next to you or the gal next to you real quick. This is really, really important. Peter believed in heaven, but Peter didn't believe in heaven because of what he was taught as a kid. More than likely, Peter wasn't taught anything about heaven when he was a kid because there's little to nothing in the Jewish scriptures about heaven. In fact, there's so little about heaven in the Jewish scriptures, half of the Jewish religious leaders didn't even believe in it. The Sadducees didn't believe in heaven. They believed you lived for the glory of God, for the benefit of God, for his glory, and not yours, and once it was over, it was over. 
Peter didn't believe in heaven because of what he was taught as a child. Peter believed in heaven because of what he saw as an adult. What he experienced, the resurrected Jesus who spoke and talked about and taught about heaven all the time. He goes on, in all this, in all these things I'm just talking about, you, plural, us, we greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. This is, this is so good. Peter didn't doubt God's love. Peter didn't doubt God's existence because of pain and suffering in the world. And here's why. He saw Jesus suffer. He saw Jesus die. And a few days later, he had breakfast with them on the beach. That reframes what you think about pain and suffering. That reframes Peter's faith. Man, this is so relevant for us. Peter's faith was not tethered to the imaginary God that never allows bad things to happen to good people. He didn't believe in that God because that God doesn't exist. Peter and all of these men and all of these women saw their Jesus, saw their friend go through some of the most unimaginable pain and suffering. And he beat it. And if you have given up on God because of pain and suffering in this world, because of pain and suffering in your own life, I would just ask you to reconsider. There are men and women and children today that are gathered to worship Jesus in Ukraine. They have gone through some of the worst pain and suffering ever, and they still find their faith rooted and founded in Jesus. I want you to reconsider because the men and women who bring us the story of Jesus saw pain and suffering like you and I have never faced. Many of them experienced it firsthand, and yet they still believed. Peter and his friends saw the worst thing imaginable happen to the best person they'd ever known. And they believed anyway. Something happened. Something took place. But their faith in God was introduced to them in Jesus. And then it, it, it was the resurrection of Jesus that reframed all of Peter's life. And I think the invitation at Easter, every single year, is for, for us to allow the resurrection to reframe our life. Here's how it reframed Peter's life. Before the resurrection... When Judas and the henchmen from the temple showed up to arrest Jesus, Peter cut and ran, right? After the resurrection, you see multiple times Peter actually runs towards danger and eventually gives his life away because of his faith in Jesus. So I just, I just want to leave you with this. This is what I came to say today. I know I've already said a lot, but this is what I came to say. We know God is for us. Because Jesus died for us, not because things always work out for us. It is, it is found on. That's the power of a resurrection in a world that's dangerous. In the first century, it was dangerous physically. In, our, in, in, in the time that we live, there's lots of really dangerous ideas out there. But the power of the resurrection is, is that Jesus died for us, not because things always work out for us, because beyond everything they experienced, everything they saw, these men and women emerged with extraordinary faith in Jesus, extraordinary boldness 
And it's all because of the resurrection. That's why we say the foundation of our faith is an event with profound implications. And here are the implications of the resurrection. It's why we know, as Peter knew, with certainty, God is personal. He's personal. And suffering is not evidence of his absence. Men and women who saw extraordinary suffering, who suffered themselves, maintained faith because the foundation of their faith was not a perfect world where nothing ever happens to, to, to good people. The foundation of their faith is the resurrection of Jesus. It's how we can know with certainty that heaven is real. Not because of what we're taught as kids. Not because it makes us feel better about all the junk in the world. Not because it's something that pastors say at funerals to make the family feel better about seeing their loved ones again. We know heaven is real because Jesus talked about it, taught about it, and pointed to it. And then he proved it by conquering death. We believe heaven is real. And maybe this might be the most extraordinary thing of all, at least to me, and I'm a little bit of a nerd, I get that. But it is the resurrection of Jesus that frees us to accept Jesus's interpretation of his own life. Another way to say it, the resurrection confirms everything Jesus taught. Okay, It's one of the things that, that drove the religious leaders crazy. There would be times where somebody that was, that was blind or couldn't walk or, or, or had leprosy, they would come to Jesus, and Jesus initially would say, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders would go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Only God can forgive sin. And Jesus would smile at him and said, yeah, and only God can do this too. Pick up your mat and go home. We believe what Jesus said is true because Jesus beat sin and death. It's more. It's more than simply getting your ticket punched to heaven. It's abundant life now. It's abundant life here. It's forgiveness. It's being in, in, in right standing with God. It's, it's him showing you how to love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus proved his power and authority over those things by rising from the dead. It's how you can know that forgiveness is available to you and you and you and you and you and you and you. I got all day. You and you and you. It's how you know that you're loved by God. It's all the resurrection, as we talked about last week, that we are now free to love and forgive as we've been loved and as we've been forgiven. We're now free to do that because Jesus did it for us. Loving people who are difficult to love, loving people who are nothing like you, and people who might never like you. You're free to love and forgive. Jesus said that's the mark of the new covenant. It's the evidence that you have stepped into this amazing, brand new, upside-down kingdom. It's the only kingdom where the king comes to die for his subjects. It's the king who's worthy of your devotion. It's the king who's worthy of your bowed knee. And if you've never done that, today's a great day to bow your knee to the king of kings because we will here in a minute and forever and ever and ever sing praise to the king of kings. Father in heaven, thank you for this truth. Thank you for the grace bestowed on us that 
it's, it's just almost impossible to get our minds around. And God, for some of us, this is, this is a moment, this is a, a space in time where we need to have a conversation with you. We need to wrestle with the implications of the resurrection. God, I pray that through your spirit, through your church, through your people, through your word, that you would speak, that you would move in ways that none of us can. And God, as we leave this place, I pray and I ask that you would, you would allow us, you would show us how to be people who live every single day in the truth and the power and the glory of your resurrection. And I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.